For those of you I have not met, uh, my name is Jason, and I serve as the worship arts director and an elder in training. And it's my privilege to bring you God's word this morning. We're going to continue on our series that we've titled Get Wise. And we've been studying the book of James, which is the New Testament equivalent of the book of Proverbs, as it provides us wisdom and ideas on how to be wise. As we've been studying James, we've seen that wisdom helps us get wise for life. It's wisdom that relates to faith that also relates to us trusting in God. Wisdom helps us to get steadfast in the midst of trials. Wisdom helps us be humble and go low when we need to be humble. Wisdom also helps us understand that everything we get from God is good, especially in the midst of this world that is in constant turmoil. Wisdom helps us learn how to fight, resist, and overcome temptation and how to listen. And today, we're going to be talking about how wisdom tells us not to show partiality or favoritism. And today, we're going to see the foundation of our faith, which is Jesus, the framing of our faith, which is looking at Jesus' example, and the fabric of our faith, which is living like Jesus. So with that in mind, I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to James 2. If you're using your scripture journals, it's on page 10. Or you can go to the YouVersion Bible app and click on the More function and click on the Events. Or you can follow along on the screen. <clears throat> James 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, <clears throat> have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God... Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love them, love him? <clears throat> but you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and, can, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, have you become a transgressor of the law? So speak. And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's holy and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to its proclamation. So, <clears throat> in partiality, the first thing that we see we need to understand is that the foundation of our faith is Jesus. Which we see in verse 1, which says... Hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is one of the only few places that Jesus is actually mentioned in this book. 
the other is in the opening of the book, the very first chapter. It's important to know, though, that even though Christ isn't mentioned, there are still many references to Jesus' teaching, and the book really reflects Jesus' heart. So that being said, an important doctrine for the foundation of our faith is his incarnation, or where Jesus became a man. And we see this in John 1, verse 14, which says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt here is better translated as tabernacled, or the idea of taking up residence. As the message translation says, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It's a great picture. Another important doctrine uh, that relates to our faith in Christ is, is how he is our expiation, which is the removal of our guilt and our sin. And he's also our propitiation, which is how we have regained favor in God's eyes. Both are a part of the doctrine of atonement, which is where we have been reconciled to God, which the prophet Isaiah writes about nearly 700 years before Jesus. It says in Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So this passage is the inspiration behind the hymn that we've sung here many a times, Man of Sorrows. The premise of the song is that Jesus came for ruined sinners like us. He was spotless. Yet he bore our shame and stood in our place. As we were guilty, vile, and helpless. And one day we're going to be with him in eternity. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard of of this comes from author Joshua Harris, who has recently deconstructed his faith and is no longer a Christian. But in one of his books... uh, I think it's like kiss dating goodbye. He talks about this dream that he had. And in the dream, he goes into this room. And there are all kinds of file cabinets there. On each, in each one, you open the file. It's every bad word he said, every sin he's ever committed, everything he's ever done that has not brought glory to God. And the image here is that there was somebody there opening each drawer pulling out the file, taking his name, wiping it clean, and putting Jesus. It was Jesus. His illustration is of Jesus taking all of his sin, all of his chastisement, standing in his place the same way he has done for you and I. Another important foundation of our faith is that our faith is by grace alone in Christ. Christ alone, which we see this illustrated in John 6, 
truly, truly, or amen, amen. Written here twice to really emphasize what's being said. I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Or as the Apostle Paul writes it in in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes in what is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses in what is saved. Grace alone is also, through faith alone is also illustrated in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I really like how the message translation puts this passage. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. This is where Christianity differs from other religions. We believe that we've been saved solely by grace alone. Other people believe that you have to do good works in order to earn your salvation, which we will discuss in a few weeks as we talk about faith and works, but that's for another time. Our faith is Christocentric which is just a big theological word that means Christ-centered. Again, we see this in verse 1. Hold faith in who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Being Christocentric, we see that Jesus is the wisdom, the word, the witness, and the worship of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God, which we have discussed on a few occasions during this series which we see illustrated really well in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.24. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then skipping down to verse 30. And because of him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, what? Wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification, or the process of becoming holy and redemption, the act of being saved. So some of the key words that I really want to draw your attention to, honestly, because they help add the the weight of this passage. The first is power, or dunamis in Greek. Or wisdom is the next one. Sophia in Greek. So if if you know anybody named Sophia, their name means wisdom. Also, we see righteousness. Dikaiosehune. Not an easy word to say. Or sanctification. Hagiosmos. Or even redemption. Apolutrosis. Again, not easy words to say, but they really add weight to this passage. Power, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, all given to us because of Christ. Recall that the entire series is about how we get wise or how we get Sophia, which happens by us calling on Christ, who, again, as this passage says, is the power and the wisdom of God. I could literally stop right here 
I'm not going to do that, but I could. But along with the wisdom of God, we see that Jesus is the word of God. <clears throat> and we see this in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I'm going to read that again. If, if you want some homework, I guess you could say, I want to encourage you to learn this verse if you do not already have it memorized. Because it is so impactful. It has the same language that echoes the creation narrative in Genesis 1. In the beginning. Not in the big inning. Not saying that God is a baseball fan. <clears throat> in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. I had to look at my notes myself. The word here, the word word, I should say, in Greek is the word logos, which refers to Jesus. I think we have the verse in Greek. <clears throat> if we were to read it in word order, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and God was the word. Also very powerful, but we have changed it in translation in order to make it a little easier for us to understand. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <clears throat> we could even say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God. And what? Jesus was God. Jesus is God. He's the very Word of God. Remember, we looked earlier at John 1.14. Jesus tabernacled and dwelt, became human took up residence, moved into the neighborhood, however you want to say it, it's so important for us to understand this. Because without this, our whole faith is meaningless. If Jesus is not actually God, what are we doing? <clears throat> John 1, 2, and 3 also reiterate this, which say, he was, with, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him and without him. Not anything that was made was made. Not anything made that was made. <clears throat> so along with him being the wisdom and the word of God, Jesus is also the witness of God, which we see in probably one of the most well-known verses. I'm sure if I were to ask most of you, you probably could recite this, at least some version or another, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but what? Have eternal life. <clears throat> some versions say begotten, some versions just say only son. It's important for us to understand that he is begotten. He wasn't born, he was begotten. The next verse, though, is just as important, I think, because it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So if we were to put those two together, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Maybe I need to not listen to David Platt so much. I feel like I'm talking past. <clears throat> so the context of this is, is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. You know, so he witnessed about himself to Nicodemus. Or think about how he witnesses about himself to the woman at the well in John 4. A Samaritan woman talking with Jesus. Jesus intentionally talking to a woman in the middle of the day. What? 
we also see that Jesus is the worship of God. Worship, or proskuneo in the original Greek language, means to lay prostrate, which is a posture of worship. It's to lay fall, to lay flat on your face. I can remember when I was a youth director at my old church, <clears throat> we would go to summer camp, and, and the, the people that ran the summer camp were a lot more Pentecostal, I think, than we were. We were Presbyterian. And there would be a lot of people who, in the middle of worship, would lay face down as an act of worship, which, I mean, I always found head-scratching because, wait, you're laying where my feet have walked? You're laying where people have sat in the middle of summer in Anaheim or in Orange County, which it gets hot? It was weird to me because I had never experienced it myself. We as Baptists, I'm not sure what we would do if someone came and laid prostrate here during one of our services. We probably would, probably would make a distinction. Hmm, that's interesting. That's, that's not normal. But the word worship we get from the old English word, mean, which means worthship, meaning ascribing worth to someone or something for <clears throat> what I mean is that Jesus is the worship of God because he shows us how to worship God, which we see as he quotes from Deuteronomy, which if you read a lot of Jesus' quotes, a lot of his quotes are from the book of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> he, we see this in Matthew 22 where he says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Or if we look at it from Deuteronomy, which is known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall walk, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. How many of us do that? How many of us say these words when we walk, when we lie down, when we rise, when we sit in our house? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's a pretty powerful image right there. Putting it here, putting it on your hands thinking about it consistently, putting it on your doorposts, on your gates. <clears throat> okay, so we've seen that the foundation of our faith is Jesus. We can now look at the framing of our faith, which is looking at how Jesus lived as our example. Which, what does it take to follow Jesus? Well, we see this in Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone come, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny, take up, follow. Three commands in that passage. Deny, take up, follow. If you remember just those three things, I think you understand the context of that verse. The first thing we see is that Jesus, we are not supposed to show partiality, which it says in verse 1, show no partiality. Or, translate it better, show no favoritism. 
Don't show partiality. Instead, know that the gospel is for everyone. As Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, Go and make disciples of places you want to go to, or people you like, of all nations. As he, it says in Acts 1.8, For you will receive power. You will be my witnesses in Samaria, in all Judea, and to the ends of the earth. It doesn't say you get to go to the places that you like. <clears throat> Do you think John Chow, who lost his life trying to take the gospel to an unreached people group in an island in Southeast Asia, do you think that was where he wanted to go, ultimately? He said, it is for me to share the word of God with these people. He lost his life. They didn't even let him get on the island. Notice in this passage, the main verb is to what? Make disciples. Why? Because we are followers of Christ and we want people to also become followers of Christ. It is the greatest news that any of us is ever going to receive. There's a reason why, you know, euangelion is good news. It's better than getting married. It's better than having kids. It's better than having a new job. Jesus literally has taken our place. We don't stand condemned. When we get to go to heaven, we get to be there because of the man on the middle cross, not because of anything that we've done. Again, look at what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is none of your own doing, and is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That, to me, screams about not showing favoritism. We are all in the same boat. We are all sinners. But we are all clean and stand justified before God because of what Christ has done for us. <clears throat> the next thing we see is to not make distinctions. Why? Well, as it says in verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Remember, Many, many years ago, I was a youth director, as I said, <clears throat> and I had my ears pierced, and, and I would wear earrings to church. And I can remember one day, this lady comes up to me after church. You know, I'm wearing a tie, still got earrings in. <clears throat> she's like, starts to say all these things, and then she tells me, she's like, the Holy Spirit tells me he doesn't want this, and she points to her ears. I'm like, hmm, Okay. This is a little awkward because you're telling me that I shouldn't have my ears pierced when they've been pierced for, I don't know, at that point. I say this because she made a distinction. She made a judgment against me. You know, I've also, I like to wear my hat backwards. I have since I was a kid. There have been people who have said, all you need is an earring, or you look like a gangster. Mm, no, I think if people see me, they're not going to say I look like a gangster even if my hat's backwards. <clears throat> but I say that because 
Distinctions bring judgment. It's us passing judgment on one another. Instead of making distinctions, we need to display God's love to everyone. What's interesting, too, is the fact that her husband one day said, I shouldn't wear jeans to church. Again, another distinction. Not sure that's very loving. You telling me if I'm wearing jeans to church. Well, I'm wearing jeans today. <clears throat> we see this in the setting of the Last Supper in John's Gospel. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Sometimes, though, loving others can be really hard, especially if they disagree with us or if they have hurt us. But look at the love that Christ displayed on the cross. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. That is love displayed. As John writes in his letter, we love because he first loved us. We have the ability to love because God first loved you and me. And, And I really love the King James Version of this verse. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. So another thing we see in looking at Jesus' example is that we shouldn't favor the rich over the poor. As it says in verse 2 of our passage, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, a poor man and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while the poor man, you sit over there, or sit down at my feet. Why is this important? Because as we read earlier, making distinctions is passing judgment. Jesus teaches us about money, which is important for us to understand because as he says in Matthew 19, again, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. I want you to, for a moment, think about how big a camel is. Now I want you to think about how small the eye of a needle is. I don't know about you, but I have trouble just putting a little piece of thread through the eye of a needle. I couldn't imagine trying to get a camel through that. It's a great metaphor and a great imagery because Jesus is saying that it's easier for that to happen than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why is this important for us? Well, because we can't serve both God and money, which if we try to, we could say is favoring the rich over the poor. As Greg Ogden reminds us, at the heart of our discipleship is the call to minister to the poor, which we are to be where the Lord's heart is. We must represent our disdain for the poor, repent of our disdain of the poor, commit ourselves to a compassionate lifestyle, and use our financial and human resources to aid the spread of the gospel among the poor. That is a very humbling quote. We must be where Jesus' heart is. We must repent of disdain for the poor, commit ourselves to a compassionate lifestyle, 
and use our gifts to help with the aid of this God, spread of the gospel to the poor. So that being said, we don't favor the rich over the poor. We instead remember the poor. As Paul writes in Galatians 2, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Notice that our passage, James isn't saying favor the poor over the rich. He's simply saying just remember the poor. Remember the downtrodden. Remember those who are in need. Why? Because he says, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done for me. The context of that teaching is that, you know, you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. You visited me when I was in prison. You gave me something to drink when I was thirsty. When did we do this? When you do this for the least of these, you've done it for me. Why, again, why is this important? Because as you and me and other brothers and sisters have done this, think about the place of honor that you would have for, say, if Dr. John Piper or Dr. Al Mohler came walking through our doors. Think about now if someone who was homeless who came, what would you do? Saw this a lot more when we were over on Niblick, but I can remember somebody coming in who had been living on the streets. I gotta be honest, I wasn't one who was happy that he was there. It was he was a nice guy, yeah, but I was always in the back of my mind thinking, hmm, I wonder, what was I doing? I was judging him. He's loved by God just as much as I am, if not more. We also don't defend the strong over the weak. Why? Because the weak are important to God. It is through our weakness that both God's grace and power are shown. Which we see in 2 Corinthians. As it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's important for us to understand that too, because if we think that we're strong, we don't need God to save us. In reality, we're never going to reach that ability to save ourselves. We can be the best person. We can do the greatest good. We can give all of our stuff away, but we're still sinners. We're still not going to save ourselves. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So again, notice that James isn't saying favor the weak over the strong. He is simply reminding us that we need to help the weak. We need to help those who have been abused. Some of you were at the SBC this week. We need to help those who are in need. <clears throat> we need to help whomever we can. Why? 
because we are commanded to do it. It says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation in Mark 16. It doesn't say go to the places where you want to go. Go to Hawaii. Go to New York. Go to Mexico. Yes, go to those places. But don't just go there. Be willing to go to Indonesia. Be willing to go to Africa, to Japan, to China, to Russia. Be willing to put your life on the line to further the gospel. You and I can take a find the example in, in Jesus and find the example of our brothers and sisters around the world who are doing just that. There are places in this world that are extremely dangerous for followers of Christ. Think about why we do Secret Church. Think about the premise of Secret Church. Secret Church is a six-hour study. Why? Because some places around the world, people don't see each other as often as we do. They don't get to worship with each other openly every week. So when they're together, they are together for a long time. They are studying God's word. They are learning. They are growing together. (coughs) So as we're supposed to help the weak, look at what the Apostle Paul says in Acts 20 as he addresses the Ephesian elders. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, of how he himself said, it is more blessed to what? To receive than give. No. It's more blessed to give than receive. That's a humbling verse. Because in the me culture, we want, oh, I want this, I want this, I want this. We should celebrate for our brothers and sisters. Oh, they have this. They are receiving this. As Paul writes in Romans 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is a very humbling study this week and and the weeks prior because I honestly am someone who shows favoritism. I go to people whom I like more, who I relate to more. It's humbling to say, you know, God, you're right. I have messed up. I have favored this brother over this brother, this sister over this sister. He writes, you know, and and the same thing in, in 1 Corinthians 8, which is another example of, of it. Which says that, which I believe is actually from Romans. I'm going to read it again, though. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. You can look up 1 Corinthians 8 later. So we've seen the foundation of our faith, which is Jesus, and the framing of our faith, which is looking at Jesus' example. We can now see the fabric of our faith, which is not just knowing about Jesus or looking at his example, but living like him. As the Apostle Paul writes to his letter to the Galatian church, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ in me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and what? Gave himself for me. The, the first thing that we see is that we follow Jesus' example, which we looked at John 15 earlier. If we keep reading it, it says this, greater love has none, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Are you willing to die for your brothers and sisters in this room? I know I'm willing to die for my, my kids. I'm willing to die for my wife. It doesn't just say that, though. It says, for his friends, that's everybody. Again, the first thing we should do is not make distinctions. Why? Because God, he doesn't make distinctions. Look at verse 5 of our passage. Listen, my beloved brothers. Notice beloved brothers is mentioned multiple times in this passage. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And again in the book of Acts. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The next thing we see in following Jesus' example is that we are to live in harmony with one another. Again, look at the book of Romans. In Romans 12. <clears throat> I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of another, one another. And skipping down, <clears throat> blessed or bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one, or no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That is so much theological truth. It's a very heavy chapter of Romans. And, and Romans itself, I feel, is like a heavyweight fight that you're fighting every time you think you have understood a theological concept in Romans. Paul hits you with another one. You have sin. Grace, adoption, worship. I mean, just to name a few. As that passage said, we should also love our neighbor. 
Look at verse 8, which is quoted from Leviticus 19. You shall, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So if your neighbor hits you, should you hit them? If your neighbor steals from you, should you steal from them? No. How do we love our neighbor? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're supposed to do good to those who you don't like or who we don't like. Look at Matthew 5. As it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. What? Why? They're my enemy. I mean, what a foreshadowing of of what was going to come. Look at, again, how Jesus loved those who crucified him. He loved those who beat him, who made him walk after being beaten with a heavy cross. He loved all of his disciples. He loved Peter, even after Peter denied him three times. A great example we see of this is in the Good Samaritan parable. You know, in that parable, there's a man who is mugged. A Levite passes by. He goes on the opposite side. A priest passes by. His own people, Jewish people, didn't bother helping. Who helped? The Samaritan, the enemy of the Jew. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. But he helped bandage, take care of. He took him to a place where he could get well. He even said that if the bill is more, I'll pay for it. He basically said, I'm going to pay for your room service bill. There is such a powerful statement here by Jesus by saying the Samaritan was the one that helped. Because the Samaritan, again, was an enemy of the Jew, and he helped the one who needed help. The next way we live like Jesus is to know that our Christocentric, Christ-centered faith transcends and breaks down social differences. Again, look at the letter uh, to the Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are what? All one in Christ Jesus. Why? Again, why is this important? Because as our passage says, God has chosen those who are to be rich in faith. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And then continuing in that same verse, God has also chosen those who are to be heirs of the kingdom. Again, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be heirs of the kingdom? So you're telling me that the the poor are to be the rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom? I want to be poor in that sense so I can inherit this. We also see this as Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. So we need to understand that showing partiality It's a sin. Look at our passage, picking it up in verse 9. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point has become guilty of it, of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become transgress- a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So we need to understand, too, that showing partiality, which is where we pay attention to one and not the other, is it's not good. I mean, look at what it says in verse 3. If you pay attention to one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while the poor man you say, sit over there, sit down at my feet. In the story of Mephibosheth, who was Jonathan's son, who was crippled, he was downcast. People could have said, oh, no, we don't want him. What? If you read the story, he is given a place of honor. It's important for us to understand that remembering the poor and the weak are not ways of showing partiality, which is the argument that James is making here. Remember the poor, remember the weak, remember those who are in need, remember the downtrodden. Which, it's this passage that the Conservative Baptist Network and the SBC likes to use out of context to argue against social justice issues. I mean, look what's been happening in our convention lately. Remember the poor, the weak, or the abused. Remember... As Again, as Gray Doggin said, as we talked earlier, we can substitute the weak, the abused, the poor, the hurting into that quote and have it be a call to us to minister to all of those people. Why? Because it is the very heart of Jesus. Jesus didn't come for those that were well. He came for those that needed a doctor. He came for the sinners. Showing partiality is also contradictory to our faith. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Partiality is undue and unfair. God shows no partiality. We are all sinners. There isn't one person who's held higher because they're not as bad of a sinner. We are all equal in God's sight because God's mercy and his righteousness are so big, we are all held to the same standard, which is that we are sinners on our own. It is only by the blood of Christ that we can stand before God and say, let us in not based on what we've done, Let us end based off of what Christ has done for us. As Apostle Paul writes in Romans 2, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And again in Romans 3, it says, There is none righteous. No, not one. 
Again, we can try to be righteous. But the thing is, is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't just say, oh, just Jason sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or just Theo, or Jason and Theo together. No, all of us are in the same boat. We have all sinned and all fall short of God's glory. Because his glory is so, under, we can't even comprehend it. There's not even a word that we can really accurately define it. So not only is showing partiality undue and unfair, we need to understand that as Jesus says in Luke 6, and as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. When I used to work with kids, I used to always kind of emphasize that even more. Do better to those than you would have them do to them, have them do to you. Do better. Serve them more. Even if it's really hard, which I'm sure we all can say there is that one coworker or that one boss or that one family member who just rubs us the wrong way. Okay, we can just shun them. No. Serve them. Do good to them. Love them. Why? Because you loving them is displaying Jesus to them. Partiality is also self-centered. Instead, we should do what the Apostle Paul tells us to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Partiality also has no place in the life of the church. As we see in verse 2 of our passage, I want you to imagine <clears throat> as, as we... I read this. The illustration in these verses is talking about you. For if a man wearing a gold ring or fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While to the poor man you say, you stand over there or you sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's hard to read and hard to put ourselves in there. Because we all do it. We want to say, oh, we don't show partiality. But the truth is, we do. So we also see that, that as Jesus again says on, in the Sermon on the Mount <clears throat> about judgment, judge not that you be not judged. For with judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you will use it to be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Again, as the, the message really puts this in a more of a helpful way to understand this, don't pick on people. Don't jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Why? Because, again, other religions and Satan know our names but address us by our sin. Jesus knows our sin, but what? Addresses us by name. So it's important for us to understand that. 
as the passage continues, it says that critical spirit, picking on people, jumping on failures, criticizing their failures, their faults, has a way of boomeranging. It is easy to see the smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do not have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you, when your own face is distorted by content. It is, the whole, it is this whole traveling road, show mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off of your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Eugene Peterson just really gives you an image of that whole passage of a speck versus a plank. Someone else's face versus your own face. So partiality also has no place in God's plan, which we see in picking it up in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Or, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards, but not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And as we looked at verses 30 and 31 earlier, it says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let no one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You and I can boast in Jesus because he has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, our expiation, our propitiation, our atonement. You can go on and on and on. So partiality is not just undue and unfair, it's self-centered. It also has no place in the life of the church or in God's plan, but it also has no place in the life of a believer. Which we see in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Okay. So let's go to God in prayer right now, and let's pray that he would give us a spirit of love to where we would not show partiality to our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would take these words that we have discussed and considered and allow us to apply them deeply into our minds. That you would give us the wisdom to apply them to our lives. We ask that you would enable us to remember that Jesus has provided us with the best example of how to live a life worthy of your calling. We admit that we don't always want to follow his example as there are times we make distinctions with others. We don't want to live in harmony with one another or love one another. We also really don't want to do good to those we don't like. 
God, I pray that we would believe that you have chosen those who are rich in faith and heirs of your kingdom. Ultimately, God, I pray that we would do these things as an act of worshiping you with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who showed us how to live. Amen.